0: Hello, St. Luke's, and welcome back to our study of Matthew. I'm glad and, and excited to be back with you today, and to be studying um, this gospel in particular, focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, and kind of using that as a as an entryway into the gospel itself. Understanding what it is that Matthew is trying to achieve with this gospel, um, how he uses his source materials, how he works with, as we talked about last week, um, how he uses Mark, how he uses. Um, what the source that's commonly um, referred to as Q, and how he um, adapts those and adds to them and supplements them in a way to make sure he's he's getting across what he wants to achieve um, in this gospel. So we're going to continue that today. Last week was kind of an introduction looking at um, what it means to compare the gospels of Matthew and Mark. This week we're going to be actually diving into the Sermon on the Mount. So To start with we're going to do just the briefest of reviews from last week to look at uh, what it was that that we learned about the gospel of matthew and and some of the differences that we've seen with mark some of these are differences that apply with the the gospel of luke um, as well as john Um, but since you all have studied mark um, and that's the primary gospel you've studied um, prior to this lesson um, in this in this series of gospel studies then we'll focus on the the comparison between mark and matthew at this point so what we discussed last week was that Matthew, in many ways, kind of footnotes or, or thickens the research that Mark does not have in his gospel. And so we said that one of the primary ways that that is done is through Old Testament references. So Matthew goes through the gospel of Mark and picks out places where Old Testament scripture foreshadows what is happening in Jesus's ministry in his life or where it prophesies about what will happen or where there's some type of fulfillment or where there's some type of warning, any type of Old Testament reference or illusion that Matthew feels like supports the ministry of Jesus, um, then those are often invoked in Matthew where they were not in in Mark. So that's something that we need to be on the lookout for. Um, these next two kind of go together. In fact, we could maybe reverse the order of them and talk about first Jesus as teacher. Um, and so, so Jesus... Uh, teaches throughout this gospel um, that he he is portrayed as a teacher, which it happens in Mark as well. That Mark tells us that Jesus teaches, but where Mark tells us that Jesus teaches, Matthew shows us that Jesus teaches, and Matthew actually shows us the content of what it is that 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 um, Jesus teaches. So we get glimpses of what are the discourses or have been called the sermons in uh, Matthew's gospel and that is where in fact we find ourselves the sermon on the mount is we could uh, just as easily call it the teachings on the mount Um, and so that's those two things kind of go together that Jesus is portrayed as a teacher and then because he is portrayed as a teacher and because we gain a glimpse of um, how he teaches and what he teaches then we begin to see that he delivers these discourses and sermons in, in Matthew, which are missing in Mark, and they're prevalent in Luke as well, um, but they're they're, they're um, they they appear differently in Luke. They they certainly aren't as as lengthy, or the Sermon on the Mount is not as lengthy as some of the pieces that we find in Luke, um, and so there's differences uh, there as well. And then the last one we just commented on that that um, it's a little bit more um, hypothetical that we can maybe think of the the gospel writer himself Matthew as he's commonly called we could think of this gospel writer uh, himself as some sort of teacher, both in that he is teaching the church through writing this gospel and through depicting Jesus in this particular way, but then also that uh, it's likely given some of the clues in the text as far as depicting Jesus as a teacher being a very obvious one, um, or but the regard that he has for the teaching of the law, the regard that he has for those who do teach, for the scribes, uh, that it seems that that's likely that, that he himself was a teacher as well so that's something that we're going to keep in mind as we go through also and then we also have a few key questions that we said we're going to keep in mind as we go through this um so these questions are kind of we're not going to always answer them explicitly but they should be in our minds at all time kind of thinking about how it is that matthew's working through this this gospel so the first question we ask is how does de- how does jesus teach um within the, na- the narrative that we're reading how is jesus appearing as a teacher Um, And then also what, what does he teach as well? And what does the church learn? Ultimately, we have to keep in mind that Matthew's goal um, was not to strictly write a a historical account of what happened in Jesus's life, but for it to be edifying to the church and for it to build up the church and teach the church. So as Jesus is teaching to the crowds, he is also through Matthew's, um, through Matthew's idea and lens, he's also teaching the church who are reading this gospel. So what does the church learn from this passage as well? How does it relate to the Old Testament? As we said, uh, Old Testament references are frequently um, employed by Matthew, so we want to keep in mind how those appear. Uh, And then lastly, what is the call to action? We talked about last week that many times in Matthew's gospel, we will see this that particular moments of teaching are also accompanied by particular moments of calls to action. Um, so that in Jesus's teaching in the gospel of Matthew, it is not only knowledge that is important, but it is knowledge that then leads towards proper action. So then we ask ourselves, what is the call to action that comes out of this text for us as the church, as well as um, what was the call to action that the earliest church would have received from this as well? So we're going to, to look um, at the um At Matthew chapter 5, which is several different sections that are divided up into how we frequently refer to them. Uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, for example, is the Beatitudes. Um, And so that's just one small chunk of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to begin with. I have to say at the outset that that this is after, um, after you watch this class, Um, you can easily come away from this saying, this is one of the most meager and thin treatments of the Beatitudes or Matthew chapter five that you could possibly receive. There's just, there's so much material In this chapter that that, uh, the entire series, their entire six week series could be spent just on working through these um, verses, we could spend an entire class period on working through one of these verses, uh, one of of these verses, Uh, Matthew chapter five verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we could we could spend weeks on that, so we're not going to be able to treat the text each verse at a time, we're not gonna be able to even treat the whole text um, within this class period. So the goal instead is to kind of take a few representative verses that we can take from different parts and to say, look at how Matthew is using this, look at how um, Jesus is teaching in this particular example. And then if we take these principles that we learned from this particular verse, and we apply those, or you, I guess I should say, you apply those same principles in your own reading of the text throughout the week, um, then we can kind of cover this whole chapter, um, even though in this uh, short lecture, we'll only cover a very narrow portion of it. But the one part that we are going to read Um, in length is Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12, the Beatitudes, um, because I think it sets the frame for what comes after. um, And it's also uh, very familiar to us, but it will also help us to kind of gauge the principles that we can extract from this collective um, teaching of of kind of short sayings that we get from Jesus. So I'm going to begin by just reading Matthew chapter 5. This comes from the New Living Translation. Um, and then after I, I read through these, um, I want us to just pause and kind of take out a few principles that we can learn from this. Um, and then in the, in the rest of the chapter, we will simply choose a couple verses and look at those to kind of learn the pattern that Matthew is using, and, or the, the, yeah, the pattern that is being used here to demonstrate how Jesus is interacting with the law in the rest of the chapter. So with the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So right away, if we pause here for a moment, there's two things that catch our attention just in the setting. So this is Matthew setting up the discussion that's about to happen or the teaching that's about to happen. The first is, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And as we see in verse one, Jesus uh, is on a mountainside. Uh, There's a lot of symbolism to this that we shouldn't miss that throughout the Old Testament, throughout scripture, Mountains and mountainsides tend to be an important place where important information is is gained directly from God. So it's not insignificant that Matthew um, that Matthew draws attention to the setting of this as being on a mountainside. If I asked you to think about what other important piece of uh, religious information came from God on a mountain, you would most likely be able to guess um, uh, Moses and the law and That we we haven't looked at this um, comparison, and we probably won't press it too much in in our particular time together. Um, But there is a comparison that's made throughout the Gospel of Matthew loosely to um, Jesus and to Moses, as Moses as the lawgiver, the original lawgiver, and now Jesus as kind of the authoritative interpreter of the law. Um, So it's not insignificant that Matthew places um, Jesus or emphasizes Jesus's placement here on the mountain. Um, In that, we'll see that he engages with the law later in this as well. And then the second point that I want to draw out in verse two is that he began to teach them. So we've said from the beginning that Jesus in Matthew is a teacher. And this is very explicit in verse two, that Jesus um, not only gathers his disciples around him, he begins to teach them. And then some of what we're missing in Mark um, that we've discussed is actually what he teaches them. So instead of a summary or instead of just skipping over it, Um, Instead, what follows in Matthew for the next several chapters is actually uh, a a recounting of the teaching that that has been um, delivered in this context so that the church and the disciples can learn from it. So he continues, Jesus sat down and he began to teach them. And he said in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, this, as I said, we can't go through these um, verse by verse. So, what I've done with these verses is I've kind of extracted out three principles that I want us to think about as we go through these. So, uh, if you'll keep your text uh, handy, you can kind of reference back to these and see how they play out. But I've only pulled out one or two verses to illustrate each point. Uh, But with the Beatitudes, some things that are important to keep in mind as we read through them is that one, that they are intentionally uh, paradoxical. And that means that they they don't make sense within any type of earthly realm or any type of earthly reasoning. So for example, um, the paradoxical nature that we have even in the opening verse in five verse three, where it's the poor who will inherit the kingdom. The poor in the ancient world, or in our world today, for that matter, are not those who we would think of of as inheriting, right? We would assume that that, um, if we're talking about um, somebody being in poor economic status, not only themselves, but their family in general, it's not likely that they're going to be inheriting much. So even the fact that the poor are inheriting is already a paradox built into the teachings here, but then what will the poor inherit? The poor will inherit the kingdom. That becomes even more difficult and more paradoxical um, in that by no worldly reasoning and logic, would there be a situation where you could assume that the poor become some type of ruling class or some type of authoritative class that now inherit the kingdom and, and have some type of possession of the kingdom. So the Beatitudes intentionally build in a paradox to illustrate that the logic of the world no longer fits the teachings of Christ and that the things that Christ is teaching no longer makes sense to any type of earthly logic. And so that's going to play in as well as we go as we transition into the following verses that look at the law and how Jesus reinterprets the law or interprets the law um, in the in the twist that he puts on um, reading those as well. So um, keep in mind that the paradoxical nature of the Beatitudes is intentional and it's intentional to show how the teachings of Jesus and those who live in accordance with the teachings of Jesus will not be able to conform to the logic of this world. Uh, a point that comes up in several of the Beatitudes also is that those who deserve ultimately become those who have. So those who deserve something and in, 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 in this world deserve something ultimately become the people who in the next world, in the next kingdom, have these things. So for example, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. As an example here of those who deserve mercy, um, are, are eventually shown mercy. And in, the, in this case, the deserving of mercy or the showing of mercy is paired together to demonstrate that that mercy is granted to them then in the end. And the same uh, going back to 5.3 as well. Those who deserve, um, if we talk about the poor, becoming an inheriting um, then we get this this same kind of fulfillment idea that comes in and we also see this in the idea of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. And so we have all this this idea throughout that those who are kind of lacking by earthly standards appear to be lacking something here or who act in accordance with the principle here on earth, in the next kingdom will actually become those things or actually have those things provided to them. So that goes along with our paradoxical nature, except now we see this kind of fulfillment to it, um, that those who didn't, those who are the have-nots have now become the haves in the kingdom. And it's not the haves of um, those who are poor now become super wealthy, um, but it's those who are poor are are now blessed in a certain way. Uh, And that leads into our final point that we see here as well, is that um, in Matthew, the teachings, some of these teachings in the in the Sermon on the Mount overlap with um, teachings that we find in the Gospel of Luke. We talked about last week that we would refer to those as the, the source Q, and that's material that's shared between Luke and Matthew. And so Matthew spiritualizes some of these more than Luke does. And so, for example, we have um, the opening line, five three again, blessed are the poor, But not just blessed are the poor, which Luke uses in 621 or in 620, but blessed are the poor in spirit. So Matthew appears to, we might say, kind of temper um, some of this to be less about the physicality and less about wealth and more about whether you're poor in spirit. Um, whether that's an intentional hedging because of the community that he's in, or whether he's attempting to uh, appease a certain group, or whether he simply wants to make sure that everybody realizes that your your status in the kingdom of heaven is not dependent on your physical situation, even if that be um, in the in the kind of negative sense of that you're suffering now that it may not be, that may not be the ultimate sign of righteousness or spirituality. And so perhaps that's what Luke um, seeks to, to kind of mitigate. And we get the same thing in 5.8 as well, where we get the idea about their being pure, and they are pure specifically in heart. So we get those who are blessed, the, the blessed are the poor in spirit, or the pure in heart. Um, so Matthew appears to kind of remove some of these things from the physical sense and put them into the spiritualized sense as well so these are these are just three kind of points that we can draw out on the on the beatitudes. Um, so if you read back through them yourself with these ideas in mind, kind of think about how is this a paradox that's being created here? What is this showing us about who who is currently being treated in a specific way in the world and how they will be treated? And then also think a little bit about the, the spiritualizing nature of Matthew, of how would this situation apply to somebody who's physically in these situations, but how might this also apply to someone who's spiritually in these situations as well? So, very briefly, with the, the rest of our time, I want us to look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, because that sets up the, the final parts of this chapter. And then from there, um, we're going to look at just one example and kind of see the pattern that is fulfilled for us. So we actually mentioned this verse in the introduction in, introductory lecture um, last week, that this kind of sets up a way of thinking about how or illustrating how um, Matthew, And Jesus are not attempting to get rid of the law or to just cast it out and throw it away, but there's actually a rich engagement with the law throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So this is what Jesus says. I'll read this real quick and I'll pause throughout and and make a few comments as we go through. Um, But um, Jesus says in, in 517, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we get the reference here to the law as well as to the prophets, right? To the ancient scriptures that are written. So we have this direct engagement with the Old Testament and Jesus warns us that he has not come to abolish them but actually to fulfill them. Um, There's a lot of debate about what the word fulfill uh, means in this passage whether it means that that Jesus has brought them to some sort of completion and so that they no longer have to be followed whether he means that he's um, actually showing you how to properly follow them now um, in this kind of, in, in this um, new post-era, post-Christ era, uh, post-crucifixion uh, era a that is, um, that Matthew is writing in. So there's, there's a lot of questions about what exactly um, uh, Jesus means here by fulfill. I think the simplest for our purposes is just to think about Um, that they aren't cast aside, that there's some type of richness that in them that is worth us engaging with. And it's worth us considering what is the principles behind these laws that are given. And then how can we fulfill those principles still? How can we honor the principles that are behind those laws um, and not just throw them out? And I think that's what we see as Jesus goes on to interpret the law is that he begins to focus more uh, to move away from kind of a strict um, legal reading Um, Not legalistic, but a legal reading of like, these are the exact words that appear here um, to saying like, what's the intent of this and how will we follow that? So then in verse 18, for truly, I tell you until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So notice the two um, verbs that we have here, that whoever practices these things, that means whoever does these things, and then whoever teaches them. So these are the two points that we've emphasized in Matthew's gospel already, that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a teacher, and that teaching is tied towards a call to action. And so we have kind of this pairing of verbs here in verse 19 as well, that those who preach, those who teach, and those who practice, these will be the ones who are called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 20 um, we get the what, what seems to throw the whole previous three verses on their head. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it, it appears that he spends these three verses saying uh, that, that he's doing some type of fulfillment of the law. And then he, he has just told us in the Beatitudes that the things that appear to be uh, good or righteous in this world actually aren't. And now in verse 20, we're challenged to actually surpass the Pharisees in their righteousness. Um, I'm going to say a word in just a minute uh, in the next passage about the depiction of Pharisees, the depiction of Jews in, in traditional Christian positions. Um, but I'll hold that for a second and just say that for this, um, what we want to, to glimpse from this is that Jesus is hinting at that the righteousness. That appears here is not a righteousness that's determined by how well you do something, by how exactly you do something. Instead, Jesus is wanting to demonstrate that at times we can actually do exactly what the law says, um, and we can at the same time not actually do what the law says, not actually fulfill what the law means. And so that's what he's drawing attention to here, is that there, there needs to be not only an, 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 an understanding of the exact wording of the law and what that wording um, allows or prohibits, but then also an understanding of what that those words actually mean and what they try to achieve. So let's look at one example. We'll look at the very first example that appears here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. Um, and as I just hinted at, one of the things I want to mention as we get into this is that Jesus is offering in these verses an interpretation of the law and Matthew portrays him as this teacher who is offering a new interpretation of the of the law that goes deeper into the law Uh, there's a, a long and unfortunate tradition in church history of reading the Jewish people as either legalistic, um, hence the, de- the definition I, I tried to differentiate just a second ago between legal a legal reading and a legalistic reading. There's a long tradition of depicting Jews as legalistic, as overly concerned, and only exclusively concerned with the fulfillment of the letter of the law and not the heart of the law. Um, and this idea that, that the Pharisees in particular become kind of the scapegoat for this, that the Pharisees were only interested in you know, parsing out their tithe to the individual seed, but actually not interested in caring for people or for for fulfilling the purposes of the tithe or, or something like that. That's a long, long history um, of, of Christian interpretation, not only of the New Testament, but then um, we see even um, in the early periods of the church about the Jewish people as a people group outside of the New Testament. Uh, it has a long history within Christianity and it has a devastating history within how Christianity um, that particular view of Jews and their view, um, their treatment of their standing um, according to the law and according to Christ has um, had a devastating history of how it's been applied to the world, um, in our world. So I want us to, from the very outset of looking at these verses in Matthew chapter 5, to note that when Jesus says, you have heard this said, but actually it means this, Jesus is not saying um, the Jews have been legalistic and have done these things, and now I'm telling you how to be a a different type of people. Um, What we should understand instead is that um, anywhere where we see a tendency to be legalistic and to overread the law of a text, that's not a particularly Jewish trait, right? That's a human trait. And I think that we um, probably wouldn't have to look far within the church itself today to be able to find equivalence to, the, to those positions as well, right? So it's, so it's not that Jesus is saying, because you are Jews, you have misread the law. Um, Jesus is saying, because you are human, humans have a tendency to do this, right? To prefer things that are concrete and legalized that we can just check off and say, yes, we've done that. Um, And instead, Jesus is saying, because you're human and have this tendency, I'm telling you, instead, you should think with this mindset, that what is the actual purpose of the law and push deeper in that. So as we talk about the interpretation of the law that Jesus offers here, it's not an anti-Jewish reading of the law. Um, It's not not um, an opposition or a critique of Judaism in general. It's a critique of the human tendency to try to Break down teachings into things that are simplified so that we can say that we've done them, and we can feel confident about that. And Jesus really challenges us on that to say, instead, you need to be looking to the intent and purpose of the law and to see how it's how you're living that out. So, let's look at this um, as we go through. We'll read this, um, and and we'll just. Um, I'll pause it at a few points just to draw our attention to, to a few um, ideas as we go through, and then you'll have to apply these on your own reading to the following um, verses, because there's several um, other chunks that go along with this that offer interpretations of, of the law that you'll have to work through. So Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So we have here this formula that that is repeated in most of the following um, uh, examples. You have heard, and it, then it, it gives some type of either an Old Testament reference or just a general reference to what would be considered kind of a, a common sense law like in this case, that you shall not murder, right? So even if this, while this is an Old Testament um, command, it's general enough that it may actually just be a general command, that it's not good to murder. So you have heard that it was said to the people of old, to the ancients, that you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to law. So Matthew establishes what is the kind of predominant interpretation of the law. Jesus then goes on to say, but I tell you, So now he offers what is the new authoritative interpretation of the law. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. So we get the new interpretation. It's not just the law is not concerned with murder, only with murder. The law is concerned with hatred and anger towards a brother or sister. And so Jesus says that if, if you're angry with a brother or sister, then you're also subject to judgment, subject to the same judgment as somebody who has committed murder. And then he goes on to give several examples of these. A practical example uh, from the human side of things. Again, anyone who goes to, says to a brother or a sister, Raka, that means fool, is answerable to the court. So we get kind of a human domain of justice that's delivered. And then we get anyone who says to you, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So we get a uh, a, uh, eternal uh, type of, of, uh, or otherworldly Um, justice that goes along with this. So those are the the kind of parallel that we follow as we go throughout this. And then we get in verse 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you. So this is uh, in the process of doing some type of spiritual activity, You remember that there's a worldly problem, you remember that there's a relationship problem with a brother or sister, Um, then you leave your gift there at the front of the altar. You first go, be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. So we pick up on some of the hints of the same ideas that we saw in the Beatitudes of how things are measured by a worldly standard and then they're not as they appear if they're measured by a heavenly standard. And I think the closing of this really brings that into focus for us as well is that the worldly, the the standing in the world and our standing spiritually interact with each other. So that if we don't have a right relationship with our brother or sister who is near to us, then we can't have the right relationship with God. And so that's, in in essence, this um, definitive interpretation of the law and the command to not murder is Jesus reframing this as that the primary concern with this is not just that you don't kill somebody, the primary concern is that you demonstrate love towards others that if there's any situation where there's some type of conflict that exists between you and another person, that conflict has to be resolved before you can move into any type of spiritual act of worship. And if those two things are in harmony, then you can't do the latter without having taken care of the former. So. I realize that's a really quick um, rush through how this is kind of played out in these verses but I would encourage you to kind of take these key parts the um, you have heard it said but I tell you this, and then how that is played out how the I tell you this is played out in those following verses to illustrate what the meaning of common laws is, um, and not um, just what the, the letter of the law is as well. So. I'll end, um, as I said, we won't discuss these specifically, but just to end by keeping them in mind, the key questions we're asking. How does Jesus teach in this passage? What is it that the church learns? And how does the church learn this in this passage? How do these passages relate to the Old Testament? And then the last one is for us to think about what is the call to action. I hope that this, although it has been rushed, I hope that it has been informative for you and I hope that it spurs um, fruitful conversations for you throughout the week in your own studies. And I look forward to hearing any questions that you have and engaging in further conversation with you all as well.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our office hours segment of the podcast. We just heard a wonderful um, exploration into uh, some of the Sermon on the Mount text from uh, Dr. McGee. And now we are with a couple of St. Lukers, um, Kimberly and Jared Dunn, who have joined us fairly recently uh, and become a part of the St. Luke's family to share their stories. So why don't you get, kick us off? Tell us a little, about, little bit about your faith stories.
2: So, uh, Thanks so much for having us. You yeah. can actually start. Oh, I
3: get it. to yeah. go? Okay. <laughs> All right. I defer to you. Um, How long is this? a Little kidding. Yeah. So I didn't really grow up too much in church. My family uh, kind of went here and there. We had a crisis within my family when I was a little older and I remember my mom going. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of like speaking scripture to me and telling me, you know, and then we'd show up on Christmas and Easter and those kind of things. Um, And then somewhere in my teens, I had an experience with God and then walked very far away and then uh, found myself in another really radical experience. Kind of, you hear about those kind of conversion experiences. I definitely had one of those. It was uh, when I was about 19 and living on my own and very difficult spot in my life and had an experience that I still to this day, like you can't deny, that just changed me forever. Um, and that sent me kind of on a journey. It was in a Pentecostal type charismatic church, um, very different than anything I had ever seen. And I was a creative and it, they played amazing music and I was drawn to all of that. And so I very kind of all or nothing and just went straight in, had first, changed everything, gave my life to kind of serving in that and felt very shortly then kind of called to ministry. Um, and started walking that path, that direction, uh, and was a part of lots of different large charismatic churches, uh, a lot of prosperity gospel, evangelical background, all of that, uh, a lot of mega churches. Um, and then we ended up going, I met Jared, and he was so lucky to have met me. And, <laughs> um, and we got married. But I gotta
2: say, we wore.
3: Oh, we yes, had, we yes, had yes a student, like we
2: had a student introduce us. I was a, a brand new school teacher. And I uh, wanted to be able to, you know, just let the students know that I was a person of faith. And so back then is when we wore the really cool WWJD yes. bracelets. Yes. We totally yes. did. And my,
3: we did. And my dance, my dance student, I was a, a performing arts director of a performing arts studio, and my student was telling me about her hot teacher. Oh, God. Who wore a yeah, yeah, What yeah. Would Jesus Do? bracelet.
4: Yeah. And so did I.
3: Nice. So there you go. So, so we met and...
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Exactly. Jesus is going... Yeah. Oh, was a dating <laughs> service. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, this is
2: online, so she, my student kept asking for a picture, and I am like, I'm not going to give a picture. You know what? And I just, I was like, I refuse. And she she was persistent. She was this really so just wholesome Mormon girl. Oh, and finally, God. all I had was a picture for my graduation was me in my uh, cap and gown and a cigar. And I said, just tell her I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, yeah, we're very complicated. So, so yeah, so we, we got married um, very quickly, and... And both felt Belt, Belt, Belt really called to ministry and ended up attending um, uh, Hillsong International Leaders College and went to Bible College and uh, planted a church. We were pastors for 17 years within the evangelical community. Um, and throughout that, it became super complicated with our faith journey. Um, a lot of questions. I'm, I am a question asker. <laughs> and I don't just go, oh, yeah, 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 I totally agree with that. Um, but I learned very quickly to kind of shut that stuff down and just wanted to be long and so believed in this thing that had totally radically changed my life. So, mm. so believed in it. I wanted so badly for it um, to just work perfectly and be amazing and blessed and abundant. And so uh, probably about, ten, I would say, 10 years ago, <laughs> we were still in ministry. Um, I now would say we started kind of deconstructing, uh, now that there's a word for it. And... Um, started me on this journey of asking a lot of questions. And I was preaching every weekend at the same time of walking out these questions and wondering and doing things differently and feeling totally conflicted. Um, And we ended up leaving evangelicalism. It sounds really harsh, but it felt like a divorce. Like we divorced Mm. this thing. Um, Because I, I now say that it actually saved my faith, that deconstruction actually saved my faith. Because uh, what we were seeing and experiencing as opposed to what we believed and who we believed Jesus to be was so radically different that if we wouldn't have left, I don't know what would have happened with our faith. So we left that and kind of wandered around and wondered and questioned and got angry and got a lot of therapy and um, have recently found ourselves, I guess we're Methodist now. Right? <laughs> I guess we're Methodist now. So yeah, so that kind of landed us here. feel so free.
4: It does, right? So good. I think part of the problem was you were probably Methodist all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what kept making Absolutely. you go. I don't think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's crazy because uh, we've talked
3: before, and mm-hmm. when you tell me certain things, I'm like, why didn't I know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, like, that would have saved me a lot of time and a lot of pain. But, um, yeah. yeah so that's nice
2: well, in the evangelical uh, church, it's very black and white. If You're not part of that if you're a Methodist. It's like,
3: in our yeah, it, it, our, background. In our background. I know sometimes
2: we're heard. But... And so a lot of times you just didn't know what you didn't know.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so, and then once we came out of that, and we, especially coming here, it was suddenly like this was a breath of fresh air.
3: Yeah, for sure.
1: So what about you, Jared? What, where does your background? Oh, my
3: gosh.
2: Wow. I was not raised at all in uh, re- really with faith. You know, my mom, she went to Catholic school her entire life. Um, So, you know, we would get, we were the CEO Christians. We would go on Christmas and Easter only. Um, But I just, I don't remember having any friends that were Christians um, or faith, you know, had any um, belief. And um, actually, my senior year of high school, um, in the fall of my senior year, I remember that I was invited to go to Young Life Camp. And I thought that there was a girl that I really liked.
4: (laughs) So I went there. But in that
2: experience, I remember actually uh, accepting Christ in my life. And I came back and I wrote on a piece of paper. And I still remember this day I wrote, uh, God loves me. Mm -hmm. And I put that on my mirror. And I I remember doing that. And then uh, little did I realize uh, later that year, uh, my senior year, on March 25th, that my mom passed away um, from congestive heart failure. And being there um, at the hospital and taking her off life support and watching your loved one, you know, my mom who I was so close to pass away and watching the moment that she flatlined her spirit, like you just, I knew who she was before and then suddenly she was not there. And in that moment, I knew that there was a spiritual transaction. I, I began to question, who's God? Where did she go? But at the same time, I was really dealing with a lot of childhood traumas, things I didn't know. Um, And so instead of really going down that path, I I fell into, you know, while in college, I fell into, you know, like uh, doing drugs, is trying to escape the pain, just not knowing what I didn't know. Um, And then literally my senior year of college, I had a life-changing experience with God. Um, You know, I was going to school uh, to become a school teacher I knew it was probably not a good thing to actually be doing drugs if <laughs> I was going to be a school teacher. You know, And so I was reconcil- reconciling that. Right. And so I started really making decisions in my life to really, you know, want to uh, get better. And then my senior year, I had a family member say, you should go on this youth group, uh, you know, out to California. They're doing admissions. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, again, I'm very analytical. And they're like, no, no, you really should. It'll be great for your resume. And I was like, oh. Great for my resume. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> and little you know, we ended up going out to, it was in Los Angeles, and um, again, my senior year of college. And we were serving at this church that had been ravaged by an El Nino flood. And all the students just started singing that old song, that song, Awesome God. Mm-hmm. And they started singing that, and I had never heard it. And in that moment, truly had an encounter with the Spirit of God and in a way that I didn't know could be possible. It, just, it literally brought me to my face, uh, uncontrollably weeping. Um, uh, not only did I accept Christ at that point, I truly uh, at that moment realized I, it, it, you know, the spirit of God, uh, truly felt like as some people call it, being filled with the spirit. Mm-hmm. It was a transaction that I couldn't deny. It's like, I, I knew who I was before mm-hmm. it was like, I was blind and I could, then I could see, wow. I was deaf and I could hear. And yeah. I knew from there, everything was going to be different. And sure enough, that drive home, um, I knew I was going to have to lay down relationships that were mm-hmm. toxic. I knew that I was going to make some decisions, even with family members, um, and ended up doing that. And that's what led me shortly after to meet meeting Kimberly. Um, and just by actually saying yes to God and doing those things, I began to see a complete shift in who I was to who I was becoming. And really, it was like I could always say, but God, truly only by God in my life at that point. And as Kimberly said, we just, it was a crazy ride. We didn't expect that we'd end up in Sydney, Australia. Uh, you know, we didn't pick Hillsong because it was the, it wasn't really well known other than "Darling, check, shout out to the Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. They didn't have United. When we got there, <laughs> United was the youth band. And you know, so it just, it was very humble beginnings, how we started. Um, and then when we told them we were gonna plant a church, <laughs> everybody thought we were crazy. I mean, we were crazy. It's we, like were crazy. we started. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. We planted yeah, a church with eight people in a living room and yeah, it's fifty nuts. bucks. Right. It be, and it's, suddenly, it's like people that joined the team kept losing their jobs. We're like, join the team, lose, <laughs> your, lose job. your job. God <laughs> <That> is love. This is crazy. So, <laughs> <you>. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But, and, yeah. and the thing was, and it just out from that experience. But it just it took off and mm-hmm. it kept growing and it kept growing and before we knew it, you know, we were in the evangelical you know church and. the the whole reason we got into church, my heart was pure. We wanted to serve. We wanted right. to make a difference. And in Australia, we were doing street teams and going out into the community mm-hmm. and you know serving the, the the least and the lowest, the most broken, and the most life-changing transformation experiences we had. And then from that, um, we got caught into the system. And suddenly, years later, realized, how did I go from that passion to now I'm caught in the system? Mm-hmm. And it really came to a place where Honestly, it was like the cognitive dissonance that my values and what we were doing, the actions weren't aligned. And we got to the place where we, just anybody knows what cognitive dissonance, when that happens, it begins to wear you down. Mm-hmm. And I began to lose myself. And to the point that we had to make some decisions that either we're going to stay and succumb to that because of pressure or do what was difficult because we knew it was right. And that's when we decided to really step out and trust in God. In a whole different way.
3: Trusting God if he was real at that point, right? Right. Because there was so many doubts that you're like, well, that tiniest bit of faith I have that this thing is actually real, we're going to trust that. But Mm -hmm. there are days that you're like, this ain't real. And people think you're crazy.
2: It's like when you've been a pastor and like, you know, it it was funny where this started happening and where we, you know, I was the executive pastor of one, it was considered the fastest growing church in America at that time. We went from like 3,500 to 7,000 in one year. I had a staff of 60. Um, it was—it was like I was getting interviewed by Outreach Magazine. All the things most people would think in ministry, and what I realized is that I was climbing up. The, I was—I was kind of thrust to the top quickly, um, where a lot of people spend twenty, thirty years trying to get there, only to realize I climbed the ladder of the wrong building. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. as I got up there, that's yes. when I began. I mean, we started going to other churches <laughs> and going like, "This is not going to be popular with our own church." When We're they working find out, for
3: churches. And attending other churches. Yeah. Wow. Trying to
2: Reconcile. make sense
3: of yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. Like it just became very confusing. Yeah. And and that went on for a while. And then we just kept thinking it was us, of course, like the yeah. shame of right. that, right? So yeah.
2: and then when we made the decision to step out, everybody you start having you hearing kind of the backstory of people thinking that you've walked away from God. Mm-hmm. And it's black or white. Either if you're not doing this, then you must you must be in sin. You must you must have walked away from God. Instead of it's not just black or white, there's gray. And I think that's the deconstruction journey is the gray in that. And then you begin to find people in that gray space. You know, people began to really, you know, speak to us in that desert place, you know, like Richard Rohr and others. And then which led us to here. we like, suddenly we come here we're like, oh my God, this is a breath of fresh air. This
3: felt like a unicorn. People. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, like, I'm not joking because we... <laughs> <laughs> I, I have said before. I really feel it because I... One of my biggest struggles, this is, we just keep going on with this first question. Is this okay? Sorry. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Okay, so we keep, we leave, and one of my biggest struggles within the church is with the LGBTQ community. I I was so at odds with what and how we had treated people, and um, that was really, really hard for me. And I had done my work around the theology, and no one was listening, and, and I was watching you know, within evangelicalism, it's always watch the fruit, watch the fruit. And I'm watching the fruit and it's literally like the worst thing ever. Oh. We're hurting people and people are committing suicide and we're destroying lives and it's not abundance and it's not good and it's not love. And um, and we just want to keep going that way, thinking we're right and that that need to be right. That was really hard for me. So watching that. So when we decided to even like tip our toe back into the the church world, I was like, it has to be affirming, it has to be completely inclusive and affirming. And then, being a woman who was a preacher and it, the sexism and the, I was always less than. And so to to come and see um, Pastor Jed up there and Pastor Melissa and you guys embracing, you know, not just embracing, but it, I mean, it's it's a part of this place. Women are just as is qualified and called. And so we needed that safety because. Mm-hmm. So much of what it felt like beat and switch so many times in evangelicalism, like we say you're welcome, but really it's if you live under our rules and that's really hard to live under. And as a leader, that's brutal. You have no safety to fail or wonder or, and that's really, really difficult and and painful and traumatic,
1: honestly, like very traumatic. Because you're put in, you're put in the space of holding boundaries you don't believe in totally yeah. right so so yeah. the leader side of it you know attending or being part of a community but then having to lead it and go oh. it's my job to hold these these lines that i don't think are there totally
3: yeah. absolutely yeah so your brain doesn't know what to do with that you yeah. know
4: which is so interesting cuz the scripture we have this week <laughs> is all of those moments where in the sermon on the mount you know, there were so many people, there were, there were outsiders, there were his disciples, there were Pharisees and people of the church or yeah. of the synagogue. And he was saying, so you've heard it said, so here's the law, Yeah. but now I tell you. And it wasn't, you know, as we've said many times, it wasn't a dismissal of the law. It was like, let me go the, let me go the next yes. mile to really get back to the heart of the law, which is, which is to go even farther. And you, you have to think about the leaders that were sitting there and listening and going... We've gotten, have we gotten caught up in the wrong thing? Have we missed the mark? Have we, are we wrong? I mean, in many ways, I wonder how many Sadducees and Pharisees, like, were deconstructing in that moment, too. I mean, is that why Nicodemus came in the middle of the night to go, oh, my gosh, I've heard all this (laughs) now. I don't know what to do. You know, it's so fascinating because... I feel you in that moment listening really? to Jesus and yeah. being caught listening to the Sermon on the Mount and feeling that cognitive dissonance, yeah. mm-hmm. which, which people yes. who were listening had to have thought about. I mean, he totally. he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and solemn pledges and okay. retaliation and then ends with love, and they must have had such cognitive dissonance of going, whoa, what is this guy? This guy's so radical. Yeah. Right. What do you do with that? Yeah, it, yeah. So did you ever find yourselves in the midst of your journey almost being afraid of deconstructing too much because there might be nothing left. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: terrifying because within it as well in the construct of what we were in, I'm sure not all of evangelicalism is in this, but what we experienced, it's always a slippery slope. You're always warmed about the slippery Mm. slope, Mm. right? And you, you learn very quickly, especially as a leader, when you raise your hand and ask, why do we do that or what about this? And there's a cost to that. You know, when you watch the people who have questioned and many times questioned too much the cost they paid, you know, there's, it's very, it's terrifying. And, you know, when you start messing with salvation and hell, whoa, hey, that's like my my friend recently who's in the middle of deconstruction said, I'm looking at hell right now, you know, and I'm like, "Uh, that is the pull of the pinata that everything (laughs) just begins to, so just know that when you mess with that, you're it. And so there's so much fear. There's there's so much fear in what we, what we were indoctrinated in, right? It's always fear. So yeah, you're scared you're never gonna come back,
4: which is mm-hmm. so ironic because you know Jared, your story started with I put on my mirror, God is God loves me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's you start with this love, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you get so far from that.
2: and right. no, that that, what's interesting <laughs> is I remember. When we start going through the deconstruction, God in His grace brought me back to that moment mm. of putting that on my mirror, Amen. and I thought to myself, "How have I gotten so far?" And you realize it's like you jump in the river and suddenly you end miles and miles down, downstream, and the currents are so strong. You, you, it's like there's no trying to go back. You're just trying to get to the side to, to get out of the get out of the current. And but I knew God loved me. And you know, even the point is like, in church we've made it so black and white, you know, it's like do this, don't do that, the commandments, and we talk about these things, but then, you know, as Jesus said, he, he said, I give you these two commandments, mm-hmm. which are all based on love. Mm-hmm. And what we realized in the church is, we would sit in staff meetings, and Kimberly would raise her hand and go, um, I got a question, what about those who are struggling with homosexuality, mm-hmm or don't feel safe in here because they're homosexuals? Or what about, you know, being on the platform? Or the, And she was, you know, she, part of her background, she grew up in Hollywood before ever being a faith believer, so one of her best friends that she was roommates with was, was homosexual, and so...
3: So what the church was telling me, and my experience as well, with right? real human right. beings... yeah, right, right, right. was it's so, kind of, yeah. you can't tell me it's this, because yeah. I know right. differently. But we've been
2: thrust into this world and again, with the right heart, like we wanted to serve. We were going to the community. We, we even as lead pastor, we started the Adopt-A-Block. But then suddenly it's like the church grows, and you get caught in the system, and, and it just happens, and you lose sight of what got you there in the first place, your first love, exactly. of making a profound difference in the lives of people. And that's where we, when we hit kind of that wall, and like I said, you have what all the, you know, most people in ministry in the world wants, like we're growing. You know, we want to be part of something big. Like we, we bought this. We did, we did a building that was an eighty million dollar uh, project. It was half, half a million uh, square feet in space.
4: Oh, sweet Jesus! <laughs> oh, just, no, no, no. Okay, no. <laughs> well, you, right you can understand this. Like,
2: so the pressure oh. is like oh, when you yeah. have when you have this pressure. Yeah. Uh huh. And you know we're dealing with this. And, 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 it, and again, I, I was, I was burning out, and then I got pneumonia, and I got walking pneumonia, and I had it. We had a newborn, and Kimberly's going through this. And it, it just felt like all sh- systems shut down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we didn't know how to deal with this. And,
3: and, there, and too, like, as a leader within it, there's a great cost, right? People are like, why don't you just walk away? Well, it's not that easy. Yeah. We mm-hmm. lose your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you lose your, all your relationships. Right? You yeah. know what's going to be said about you. Yeah. You're going to be called bitter. You're going to yeah. be labeled things. And we learned how to, we kept leaving churches. I think thinking that the next leader would be the answer when we found the system was the problem, right? Yeah. And, and so once we realized that, it was easier, but it cost us everything. Yeah.
2: Like it really did. Well, it's like Freud talks about it. it. Actually, I had never gone to counseling, okay? And I wasn't ever encouraged right. in ministry to go, to go to counseling. It was after coming out of ministry that I, went, I finally went to counseling. and I started learning things like cognitive dissonance and learning things like repetition compulsion that Freud talks about, and realizing why we kept going in circles and going from church mm-hmm. to church mm-hmm. because we were looking for, we, we were look, going back, like wanting what was pure. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, just couldn't find it. But it really at the end of the day, it was the struggle within us mm-hmm. that we had to come to the end of ourselves. Um, and that's where, you know, again, having people um, like Richard Rohr to speak into it, that became that became a voice in a very dry place. Because what you do give up your... Uh, you know, especially when you're you're at the top of the pay scale, it's like you're giving up a great salary, you're giving up everything. And after doing that many years, like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I... it, that,
4: yeah, our resumes it, are not. It, no. <laughs> we literally yeah, said, yeah. What do we do with our Trust world. me, us Methodists <laughs> are thinking the same <laughs> thing. We're like, What do I put yeah, on yeah, 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 there? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like this person.
2: I'm not getting any younger. Like, I just turned 50. It's right. Like, Nobody you know, wants to hire yeah, us. Exactly. Motivational speaker. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, so, those, those are things you wrestle with. And then the other thing is, you know, you're going to be giving up your community. Yes. And when you go into, as a, as a pastor, into a new community, it is like this. Easy acceptance. People want to be your friends. People want to have you over. So it's like automatic acceptance. But once you leave the church, suddenly it's not like that. So we had to learn how to create new relationships in healthy ways that we never had to do over the past 20 years. Wow. So that was kind of, again, all these things were learning lessons yeah. for us. Like, oh, we actually have to learn what it means to be make friends naturally. Yeah, <laughs> seek it make, out. How do you make, yeah. do you make yeah. friends
1: as an adult? Because I'm not really sure. <laughs> hard stuff. Well
2: that hard kind hard of was,
0: was, what it was my question, was how have you navigated the fact that sometimes deconstruction uh, can place distance between yourself and yeah. all of these people you've cultivated relationships with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't know if we've navigated it yeah, well yeah. all the time. Um, yeah, it's it's very difficult yeah. because you have very differing opinions. And what a lot of people, I think, don't recognize is by the time you're kind of like outing yourself as deconstructing, you've been doing it for a, a long time. Right. So these aren't like new ideas, you right. know. Um, so then they're like, but have you thought about this? And what about this? And they come at you. what we haven't cultivated, I think, well is, conversation and people being open to just listening and hearing. Um, That I wish we had more of. And what you would find is people quote more scripture at me. And I'm like, I preach those scriptures. Like, yeah, "Yeah, I know. So it did create a distance. And what you were just looking for is someone to hold that for you and have space for you uh, to wonder and and to hold your pain. We went through a lot of pain, like even sitting in, I have to deal with my stuff with authorities in the church still really? coming here today sitting here they're not the pastors from the past they're not what you've gone through before yeah. that's pain like that's triggers mm-hmm. that's real trauma for me yeah. um navigating that and and holding space for that and accepting that and even if you don't agree with me mm-hmm. hear me listen to me um so it's been really hard to find those places what's fascinating and this just has to be a god thing but is that all the people who do ke- deconstruct, even if we hadn't talked to them a long time, they somehow find their way to us. Yeah. Mm. So then uh, some it's of our community... community forming there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which is, and they're asking questions, and we've become those safe spaces, wow. right. um, which is really cool. But it's it's really hard. It's tricky, you know, to, to learn what to say and what not to yeah. say and yeah. where your safety is. So.
2: Well, I'll say one of my learnings too, being in ministry in a paid ministry position, I was dealing with all the whiny Christian, especially <laughs> on my staff. Not that there's any no, of that here, yeah. right? But it, no, it's not. Gen, 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 Gen. But here in my role, my job was to deal with a lot of those things with large staff. And I got to the place where I longed for the connection for those who did not know God. Mm-hmm. And because I think part of that was my yeah. wrestling. Like, I want to know God more. And I, 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 I want to kind of separate from, my, from the system. So I, I remember praying prayers like, God, if you just give me the opportunity to get outside of the church walls. And really, as you know, the term ministry means to meet the needs of another. Mm-hmm. And, we, and many times we make it as a position or an authority, you know, as a pastor. And, and so I had longed just to do authentic, pure ministry. And so even, you know, when I talked about what do you do afterwards, when, when we, I burnt out. I went through an accidental crisis. I hit my bottom to the point I was in therapy. I went to a thing in Arizona called a, a Survivors Workshop, which is all about understanding traumas from childhood, like. I began to dive deep into our marriage
3: was
1: on the yeah. brink. I mean, we sure. we
3: unraveled all yeah. of it. Like it I was think, a lot.
1: Honestly, I think it's amazing you're both married that you you went on this journey together. together yeah. <laughs> right, because right. so often mm-hmm. in my conversations it's one it's one partner or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And and there is there is not just the community relationship you are are putting on the line. You're putting your marriage on the line yeah. because mm-hmm. one person is in one place. So I it's beautiful to me to see both of you having been able to go on that journey together, which I'm sure it has not <laughs> always been, you know, yeah. roses yeah. and butterflies,
2: but the, that you you did. And she started earlier. Like, here, I'm working in this massive church, and she's going through this. And so I'm watching her go through this, and I'm just like, no, 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 nothing to see here. Right, i got to right. deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and so watching her go through that, it was forcing me to have to address some issues that I just kind of wanted to push, but it's like a beach ball in the water. It just kept popping up. Mm-hmm. And just to the point, that's why I said, when, when I finally left ministry and, you know, I took a year and a half off from work because I was like, I just needed, I needed to find Jared. I needed to find who God was in my life, what he really meant. And how I wanted to actually have be my second act. And when I looked at ministry, that's why even I chose to go in real estate because I thought ministry is meeting the needs of another per people, or person, going out and helping people, you know, in their lives, not just transactionally, but where it ex- experience experientially without the title of pastor. Yeah. And what I love is I, like, we work with divorce clients mm-hmm. who are going through the worst times of their life, yeah. and we get it's the opportunity awesome. to, mm-hmm. to come into their life in this crisis situation, the traumatic situation, and to be there, and we don't have to wear this badge or this title, say, hey, I'm a pastor. You know, We just come in and we show them love, and we lead with love, and as a result, they're like, there's something different about you, and we don't need to say, it's God. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right, know? Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know what? We're called to be the light to the world, right. and that's what we get to do, you know, her in her coaching with life coaching, divorce coaching, me in real estate. And that's why it works so well because most people don't want to deal with their trauma. You know, it's like vast majority of people out there have some type of trauma. They don't know why they're dealing with it. So like we have more effectiveness in the world now than we ever did in our positions in ministry.
4: Mm-hmm. You know, it's so interesting because I go, again, I got the scripture in front of me for this week. I mean, Jesus, the first laws were given to help people out of trauma. Let's yeah. not create right. more trauma. Yeah. Let's an Sweet. eye for an eye was let's not create more trauma. Let's yeah. not do it that way. And then he was doing the same thing. He was like, no, no, we're still creating trauma. Let's go, let's go to the heart of it. And it's so interesting because I as you said that, Jared, the last part, 48. Therefore, just as your heavenly father is complete in showing love to everyone, yes. so also you must be complete.
3: Period. Yes.
4: Period. End of discussion. Yes. <laughs> like Yeah. Because people have gone through trauma. And yes. the only thing that heals trauma is is love. Yes. Complete love. And right. the problem with it
2: was well, after coming outside the church and doing our work, like I said, I went, I went to this place in Arizona where it was all about understanding becoming trauma-informed, you know, and learning the modalities of experiential uh, healing and counseling and things like that, not just cognitive therapies. And going from that, I realized we have this thing like, the church as a whole is so not trauma-informed. So we just tell people, well, just need, you, need, you need to believe more. You just need to come to church more. You need to just serve more. more. Show up more. It's about, it's about more instead of actually about showing them the love and actually us getting into the hard places with them and doing what's necessary because, we, again, it's just like we have blinders on. You know, it, We're so concerned about building our churches instead of, you know what, it's loving the one person at a time. And if we just became more trauma informed, I think that we would be so much more effective in our in our in our ministries.
1: Because trauma informed is not only about recognizing others have trauma, but it's recognizing your own. Oh, yeah. And it's right. and it's right. so often it's like, well, if I'm trauma informed, I just, you know, sort of let people do their thing because they might have No, it's also me. Oh, yeah. In, in fact, more it's me. And yeah. that isn't necessarily the work that we ask people to do. We ask them to check boxes and we We're, ask them, to, right. um, them. To, to fit it. Okay, I, I'm going to protect you from yourself by giving you this list of yeah. rules yeah. rather than giving you the tools to, to, to learn yourself.
2: When it goes yeah. back to self-love, we yeah. talk about love of God. We can't truly love to the greatest extent unless we have self-love. Right. Right. And that's about us embracing how God right. sees us right. and, and, and it, truly getting that transformation from the inside out. And when we have that, then we can truly love our neighbor as ourself. Mm-hmm. And the issue we run into is the same thing. If we can't truly love ourself and have the self-love, how can we truly embrace the love of God and, again, even see you know our own traumas and then accept the trauma of others? Many times what we do is we don't want to accept ourselves, so we project. Yes. We project our pain. Mm-hmm. We project our—then we use religiosity or scripture as, as this kind of veil of safety mm-hmm. instead of actually— Living in vulnerability, you know? Oh. It's like, again, I love Brene Brown. She talks about, you know, shame and and how shame completely is like, Adam and Eve, they hid, you know? But Jesus on the cross was naked and exposed mm-hmm. is the antithesis. He is the most vulnerable. He made himself. So I think it's, it's a beautiful picture of in our vulnerability, we can have our greatest strengths. And many times most people don't want to be vulnerable. Yeah, that was not so like, the message me. Yeah.
3: Right? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I have unashamed on my arm because I've been fighting to <laughs> yeah, be unashamed yeah, right, you know, because there, there is so much shame. I remember having a, I, I, I had never totally fully understood, I think, unconditional love. You know, you hear about it and yeah. you hear about the love of God. and But I had a spiritual director in my life who, he was the first person who had no skin in the game with me. I didn't know what it was to have yeah. a leader and a someone who just loved me and didn't need something from me. It wasn't performative. There was not transaction. Yeah. And I remember the first time I took a really vulnerable, horrific, Thing to him. And he stopped what he was doing and he wept with me. Mm. And I had never had anyone do that with me. In fact, if I would have been brought that same thing in the church many times, it would have been met with, well, what did you do to invite this? Or where's the enemy in this? Or how did, you let the, how did you let Satan in? Or what is your part? Or those things. Or how can we fix this? Right? And he just wept with me. And it is a transformational moment in my life because I felt that love from another human for the first time, someone who just loved me for me. Mm-hmm. And it was such a picture of what I believe God is. Like God is, I remember Rob Bell, who is a slippery slope, right? He's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, there, you go. There, Bell, Bell, there it is. Richard Brewer, right? Rob Bell, I do all the slippery
3: slopes. Um, said, what if what if God is better? And greater than you ever thought he was. Mm. And that has
4: stuck with me because he is. Yeah. It's he so is. funny because you mentioned Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. And then you jump to Jesus. Yeah. But I'm like, but in the Adam and Eve story, yeah. God goes, who told you you were naked? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 I mean, God started yeah. that. Yes. Let me give wait you wait clothes. Yeah. Let me take care of you. Yes. Let me weep with yes. you. Let me tell you it's I'll okay. Sit with you where you are, you know. But we leave out that God. Yeah. In order to jump to Jesus, which I'm all good with jumping to Jesus too, but yeah. it's the same God that was in the beginning, yeah. going, No, 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 no. You're you're okay. You're, just okay. As you are. you're yeah. good. You're yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isn't it
2: funny it how we've like. Couple thousand years from Renee Brown, but that's the <laughs> I, one, <right>? know. <laughs> I, know. I was like, What? Yeah, I, know. I know, right? It's yes.
4: not revolutionary, right?
2: People don't like vulnerability, you know, and transparency. And that vulnerability, I'm telling you, especially ministry, you know, this. They always say, and I heard this in Bible college the higher up you go, the lonelier it gets. Yeah. And I was like, But it won't have to be that way, not with me. And then it happens. And then you take hits. And then you have people that are closest to you come against you. And you understand truly like the, the, the journey of Jesus and those who betrayed him and the people that you completely had in your homes and the people that you walked side by side with that you did life with with your kids and they betray you. And you sit there and like we at one point after, we literally gonna walk away from ministry earlier on so we were so betrayed. And we had some friends who were pastors say to us, you, you have every right to quit, but let's talk about it if you don't. And secondly, if anybody understands betrayal, it's Jesus. And for the first time, I truly understood betrayal mm-hmm. at a deeper way. And, and, here, and watching, you know, we, and we step back in. It was like we felt like we were kind of that, hitting our head against the wall. You know, they say insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting That's the same right, results right. or different results. And we did. So we hit our head against the wall, you know, silly many times. But here's the cool thing in this. Even in the crazy journey, we know countless lives were changed. People continually reach out to us saying, because you did this, because you showed up at this difficult time, because you...
3: And that's the hard part, right? Yeah. We've struggled with that because as leaders, we were complicit to the system too. Sure. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's hard even finding your place now because I think about all the people I hurt, the people I wronged, um, those people that might listen to this and go, oh, well, I have a story of you not mm-hmm. being Jesus. Yeah. And not knowing where you fit now because of that. Like, do I even have a right to say anything? Mm -hmm. Because I hurt people. And I was part of that. And um, that's hard. That's really hard to to deal with. You know, and I guess you know better, you do better, right? That's what I'm trying to. And grace all that. But uh, So it's Mm -hmm. difficult. It's really difficult.
1: So I wonder as you think about your your and not that not that you're done, right? Because you're you're Methodist now, so you yeah. don't ever get to be done. So you're done. You're the, the, the duns. Oh, yeah, there oh. it is. Um,
2: I've actually used up for real estate, go oh, another done deal. Yeah. Oh there <laughs> it is.
1: Gotta do it. Gotta
2: do it. Uh, <laughs> gotta use the name however. I love
1: it. So in the in this process of deconstruction and this this work that God has been doing in your life, because this isn't just you, this is God partnering with you yeah. to do this, yeah. right? what has been the the hardest piece to let go of and what has that made room
3: for for you to gain as a result of letting it go? That's a great question. Um, I think for me the hardest piece to let go of that felt the most costly for me was my need to belong. Mm -hmm. Um, Losing community and the... I have so many... It's so hard because you hold both. You hold these beautiful memories and these really big traumas in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to let go of what I knew and some of the safety that even though it was unsafe, like it still felt safe. I knew it. It was, right. it was something I understood. I knew how to talk in it and be in it. And I belonged in it. And people liked me there. And um, that was really hard for me to let go of the belonging and the part of a community. And it's still for me hard to, I'm having to trust that there's another community for me. What's beautiful about it is that where I used to put so much in what people thought of me and what my leaders thought of me and doing the right things and I shut down so much of myself and my gut and my discernment and I have good discernment. My, my spiritual director's like, you need a book of BS. When you get discernment, you write <laughs> stuff down. And then if it comes to pass, you're like, see, I knew. Cause I just doubt myself all the time. So learning to trust the God in me that will know the red flags and be able to make the choices I need to. Now i not put my worth in, People And even in you guys, like, that's not yeah, fair right, to y'all. Like, right. be the pastors I need you to right. be, Methodist people. Like, <laughs> prove to me. <laughs> prove to me that you love me, Methodist pastor. <laughs> um, that's not fair yeah, to you. Yeah. Right, right. So me so
4: learning to be a
3: whole person <laughs> who hears from God yeah, and then trusts every day to, to jump in a community and then on the other side, I can have an even better, mm-hmm. greater, deeper community than I ever had before. Um, that for me is a lot. Of what I struggle with.
4: Oh, uh, uh, thank you. Because I, I have, I have really been deconstructing over the last few years. Where people say that the pastor is a primary theologian, uh-huh. and I've like, uh, like yeah. a switch went off in the last three years of my life. I was like, absolutely not. You yeah. are your own yeah. primary theologian. Yes. My job is to help you, right, understand that relationship, so you can yeah. be your own theologian yeah. and. I will will say that I'm not going to say any names
2: because we worked in multiple churches. Yes. But we had a pastor that we were under that actually said to, in our staff meeting, that I am the chief interpreter of scripture. (gasps) Yes,
3: I've heard that. And and, and I went... I've heard that in Methodist circles And this is after I brought the LGBTQ concerns (laughs) about LGBTQ and things I was questioning and wondering about. He's like, well, I'm the primary... Chief interpretive scripture, and I was like, "Whoa, wait that in here?" But yes, Good thank you. You.
1: you. you can ask any, particularly youth that I've worked with, but anyone if they ever go, "Well, what does this mean?" What's the first question all all of us are going to ask? What do you think? Well, what do you, do you think it, think it means? Oh yeah, no, yeah. no, yes. I'll speak into it. I, yeah. I won't. I won't totally. not you know put some value into that. But I'm not going to start by giving you my answer for
2: that. <laughs> i got ideas and so do you. Here's yes. the amazing about God in this, in his grace, because obviously I remember Bible college, Gordon Fee came and spoke to us. He did a book, uh, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, and mm-hmm. he said context is key. Mm-hmm. But what you realize is God's grace in that, like where you start is not where you stay. So like the the, the basic understanding of Bible, you know, like versus where you evolve into over the years, it's like it's, it's like an archaeological dig. You sift through yeah. and the truths as you get deeper and deeper become even deeper So even if we just told them what we think it means is not necessarily going to connect with their ex, they're at a different level. They haven't dug to that level yet. So that's you asking yes. that question like you tell me and letting them to try to find what that context means to them, because that context in that season might look different right. in a different one. But it, it, you know and what I realized with um, Kimberly and myself, when we were in Australia, again, right heart, we went across the world to go after God. And there was this opportunity we had that I was, was given to us to go through this training called Search for Significance. And the thing that stood out was it talked about the core needs of the human heart. And it said, you know, we all have a God-shaped hole, and there's three things that we all long for. The need for acceptance, the need for belonging, and the need to be valued. And the problem many times, we're seeking that out from humans. And ultimately, only God can give us that. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized, and we, we came back, and the church we launched, we actually said, you know, uh, the church, a place of acceptance, belonging, and value. Well, when you say those oh, things, man. it brings out everybody. Yeah, and you we know?
3: didn't know
2: how to deal with all that either. like, we opened Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah. But what we realized- <laughs> community, discipleship, right. service. There it is, yes.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. 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 all the things we love about yeah. this place. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and what, and Which re- is what the Sermon on the Mount is. Yes. yes. right. Totally. And so we realized Absolutely. years
2: later was the very thing of why we got into it and the thing we were even, you know, telling the church we wanted was coming to a place even outside the church, like, I just wanted to know that I was accepted by God in my new construction. Yeah. That I still belonged as a child and that I was still valuable, not because of what I did, but for who I was, even in that broken state, in that existential crisis, that completely lost person in my late 40s going, who am I? What am I going to do? And then just, it, that, it, remember, it's like complete desperate dependence. Mm-hmm. Like when you are at that end, it's like, it's amazing to watch. Some people call it revival, but I think it was a personal revival because when you completely surrender and live open-handed is when you can really begin to watch God do his best work.
1: And those three things are things we would say is the starting point. Yeah. yeah. That, that you you've already got all of those from God. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. You don't have to ask for anything. You don't yeah. have to have yeah. any experience that acceptance, belonging, and value yeah. for God, done, handled, yeah. now what? Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 so thank you right. yep. yeah.
4: that was awesome thank that was you amazing. for our conversation <laughs> yeah. um, we're excited about people hearing this and people getting to know you and for you you know getting to know people at saint luke's and leading in that way because yeah. it's just more of of who we are so thanks for listening all of you we thank you for listening to the podcast today and we will see you sunday in worship